Welcome to the CSC Podcast. I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On today's episode of the CSC Podcast, we'll feature part one of my interview with director Will Davis about playwright William Inge, who is most well known for his Pulitzer Prize winning play, Picnic. We'll talk about Picnic, Will's 2017 production of that play, and also explore why Inge's works can be challenging for audiences today. That's all coming up on the CSC Podcast. CSC has recently launched the Coming Back Stronger campaign to raise funds to secure the long-term success and financial health of the company. The Coming Back Stronger campaign is a place for donors of all levels to show their support for CSC's work and mission and will ensure that CSC can reopen after the COVID-19 shutdown stronger than before. Coming Back Stronger means expanding our artistic programming to reflect all voices. It means welcoming all audiences to a safe space. It means addressing the immediate financial impact of the shutdown and securing the future. The Coming Back Stronger campaign begins with you. Gifts of $50 or above will be recognized on our virtual donor wall. Find out more about the Coming Back Stronger campaign online at classicstage.org slash comingbackstronger. William Inge was a playwright and novelist, most well known for his plays Picnic, Bus Stop, Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and Come Back Little Sheba. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Picnic and the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the film Splendor in the Grass. But despite these accolades, we don't see his work produced on the same scale as some of his contemporaries like Tennessee Williams. In this two-part episode, we'll discuss Inge's legacy with award-winning transgender director and choreographer Will Davis. Davis, who focuses on physically adventurous work for the stage, is well-versed in Inge's work and gained acclaim for directing a groundbreaking production of Picnic for the American Theatre Company in Chicago in 2017. Davis is also known to New York audiences for productions of Men on Boats with Club Thumb at Playwrights Horizons and the recent encores off-center staging of Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman's musical, Roadshow. Will, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it is my total pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with William Inge and his work, who was he? What did he write about? You know, who who is this? Who is this playwright? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you about that from my perspective, um, as there, there are all there are absolutely Inge scholars. <laughs> So please let us not assume I am I am definitive in any way. In fact, let us assume instead that I have an agenda. And that is how I will share with you my information of what <laughs> I think Inge is great. about. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, so uh, Inge is uh, placed in time and space as being a contemporary of Tennessee Williams. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the tragedy begins right there, you know, um, that, that he's, um, uh, identified, um, via Williams, <laughs> but, it yeah. is, but it is true. It's a similar, um, era. Uh, he's, um, 
very, very much, uh, you know, the Midwest claims claims him. He's from Kansas. Um, most of his plays are are set in some kind of fictionalized version of the town he grew up in, and you can you can hear this. Uh, in, in all of his plays, he grew up very much um, with his mother. He was raised by his mom, uh, and he had a salesman father who was in and out. So mm. it's just, you know. How do you hear that in some of his work, like in particular? There's um, the way I hear it in his work is that there is um, a real sense that uh masculinity is at the fringe and femininity is at the center and the stories and characters that have the most nuance are the women um and the men who um who exist in his work they either uh orbit the women or they sort of they um come in and out or uh you know dark at the top of the stairs, uh, for example, you know, um, there's kind of a main explosion set off at the top of that play, which is about the salesman father who leaves. Um, in Picnic, men are uh, depicted as absence. So there's, there's a performance of the absence of men. For me, particularly when it comes to Picnic, I think there's a uh, a deeply queer way to look at that um, uh-huh. a, as it as it relates to what it means if we if we read the play through the playwright what it means to not have a man and the ways that perhaps inge desperately longs for a man uh, feels rudderless without one um, and at the same time is utterly terrified by what a man can do. So, since we see the absence of men play out in so much of his work, what do you think this means for uh, the concept of masculinity and, and how that sits within his plays, especially you know, during the time in which they were written in the mid-20th century? So, I think another way you see masculinity show up in his work is uh, some of those male characters are two-dimensional um, and in my reading of it, there's a, there's, there's a psychological basis. There's a reason for that. It's not bad writing. Um, uh, but in fact, it's about men as a projection surface for, um, both terror and also, um, uh, as a fetish object. So I think that a lot of times you, or not, well, who knows if a lot of times, that's my opinion. Um, these male characters, they might as well be cardboard cutouts of cowboys, you know, who are like blocking out the sun, that they are um, far more uh, mysterious and uh, and sort of harbingers of, of bad things. You know, I think that uh, sometimes people talk about picnic and they talk about, oh, we're just having another day here in our little town. And then a man showed up and Havoc got, was just unleashed upon everyone, you know? So I also think that he uses masculinity um, to investigate, um, t- well, terror and how men 
in his own life, in his own repressed, closeted life, could be this pivot point or this launching point into um, a deeper connection with something sensual, something sexual, um, and also just a, a basic connection with passion. How do you think that then informs his plots and the nature of what his plays are about? Um, so to me, part of what makes Inge so deep is the sort of closeted tragedy of his plays. That um, on the surface, um, the sort of plots, plot lines and the characters can read... Um, it's very soapy, uh, very dime store novel. Um, right. Which there's there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with you know your genre. But I think there's this sense, particularly to go back to the top when uh, Inge and Williams get put next to each other, um, right. that there's this sense of like, well, that there's no depth there. And to me, what I'm reading is that just under the surface of this very cheery, um, seemingly thin uh, character and story is this author who is uh, has such deep longing that is at cross purposes, that on the one hand, he wants nothing more than to be accepted and to belong. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, he wants nothing more than to be himself. And that I think in his canon, you watch those two things cancel each other out. So uh, the question I think in a lot of Inge's work is, is it okay for me to, uh, or not okay, really, is it safe for me to identify in opposition to my community is a question I think that he's posing in a lot of his work, whether he knows it or not. And the answer is no. So his plays have a very, to me, a very sort of Chekhovian tragedy vibe to them that you it's painted in uh, horrifying detail what the longing is, what the what the hope is, you know, like what the Moscow is. Um, and then and then the answer is, uh, you know, go back inside and be quiet. I'd love to delve a bit further into Picnic and how it is representative or not of, of his canon. You know, it's possibly Inge's most well-known play. It was also a hit film in the 1950s. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and it concerns various members of a small town getting ready for a Labor Day picnic, and in particular how this one character, uh, a drifter named Hal, starts a relationship with the character of Madge, and how this more or less impacts the, the lives of the various people in the community. Can you tell us more about the play? Yeah, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. I, I, I've been obsessed with Picnic. Um, I think I'm entering my second decade of obsession with Picnic, which <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, and it is Inge writ, writ large too, my, my obsession with this man's canon, which is really just my obsession. My, yeah, it's my obsession with the, the writer and the, the tragedy of his life and the tragedy of his art. Um, and the really the way that um, 
the language and picnic is a great example. Um, the language is a closeting force on the sort of big passionate heart that's underneath it. But uh, when I read picnic, I feel like I'm, I'm reading code from a sort of container or world crafting point of view, all of the language of picnic seems to me an, uh, an attempt to repress the bigger feelings that are underneath it. Um, and certainly, you know, the language hasn't aged well at, at all. And that I think was part um, initially of my interest of this idea that like, I'm going to speak to you in this really squeaky clean, super hetero, super cis, super white, just like uh, Procter and Gamble, you know what I mean? Just like <laughs> yeah. really just like clean nonsense language. That's, that's how I'm going to speak to you, my daughter. That's how I'm going to speak to you, my sister, you know, and if there are moments where my deeper, more three-dimensional um, feelings come out, they're going to happen in these little bursts and then get covered back up by this language, this closeting force. Um, you know, so so that's kind of where I started because Inge was never really out, you know, not in the way that Tennessee was out and certainly for the time, not in the way any of us are out now. <laughs> um, and I think he had a lot of internalized hatred, a lot of internalized homophobia, which we all have, you know, like I'll say as a trans person, my transphobia is a real problem, <laughs> you know. And I, I'm trying to make light of that because I just, I just want to, to say that, you know, what, what an internalized phobia is, is just an expression of the culture you live in. You know, we yes. learn how to police ourselves from our surroundings. And that is, again, one part of the great tragedy is that, you know, we, that gets fed to us, we metabolize it. And then, you know, in the middle of the night, all alone, we do that self-policing work ourselves. And I guess that's what I'm saying. That's what Inge's canon is to me. It's an exercise yeah. in policing of the self, even when there's an opportunity to do something else. You know, he's not, he's not writing um, these, you know, like, uh, he's not writing a, a queertopia, you know, he's, he's, he's writing the world in which he knows he should exist in. And then what he does is introduces this problem, this man, this desire, this whatever it may be into that world and say like, uh, okay, now I have to go to battle with my demons. You have a personal connection to Picnic in large part because of your very well-received 2017 production in Chicago with the American Theatre Company. How did that production begin? This particular production of Picnic, um, for me, it started out as a project where I did um, a reading of the play and brought in, uh, just with three other people playing all the characters, and I brought in two laundry baskets full of summer dresses. And I said, I want us to read the play together and fold this laundry. 
And for me, um, there was a sort of a meta thing going on, which was that uh, I was in an early understanding of myself as a trans masculine person and the laundry I had brought in were actually all my dresses that uh, I was then going to donate. And so I wanted to do, <laughs> I wanted to do this thing, this, um, what uh, hopefully um, is always happening on stage, which is juxtapose two ideas, two different sides of the same idea. So there's this like, quote unquote, sort of like women's work, this sort of like busy work of let's fold the laundry. We're not going to get up until the laundry's folded, you know, and also what we're folding are um, all of these dresses, which, you know, prior to my um, opportunity to come out, I had um, really tried to perfect drag for myself. You know, I'd really tried to perfect femininity. So all of these dresses were in shades of pink. And, you know, I'd really, really tried to be a good woman, you know. Um, so yeah. I thought, all right, so let's, let's, we'll, we'll fold these and then we'll see how the language of this play um, phrases like, you know, one of the first things Madge says at the top of the show is, well, nothing bothers me, she says. And the stage direction is like, she's towel drying her long, luxurious locks, you know? And then, you know, cut to the end of the play, one of the last things Madge says to her mother is, why didn't you tell me this is what love felt like? Um, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, paraphrasing a little bit, but I think you can see, you know, like that's the arc of someone who's like nothing. No, I'm great. You know, to right. like, oh, my God, this is a feeling. So that's where it's that's where it started. And um, before I ran my own theater, I couldn't get anyone to say yes to Picnic. Um, I couldn't get anyone to say yes to Dark at the Top of the Stairs or Come Back Little Sheba or even Bus Stop. Um and I, I think that what happened is that over the time of me trying to pitch <laughs> these productions, I did, uh, I got really lucky because I learned how to refine why is it that I feel so deeply attracted to this work that other people are like, are you kidding me? You know, you're not even, are, absolutely not. <laughs> and, um, part of what came out of that was a realization that um, I wanted to make a production of Picnic that was a gift production. Um, I've been rereading Lewis Hyde's The Gift in this in this uh, time, this quarantine pandemic time, because I think it's a really um, beautiful moment for us to think about how our art making can be a more perfect gift. And there's two sides to that. There's the gift I want to give, and there's the gift you want to receive. So mm. again, there's already a tension. Um, and when it comes to Inge, um, I read his canon all as a love letter to Tennessee Williams. Oh, that's very interesting. How so? Um, you know, uh, I so again, I'm speaking... Um, I am, I am not I am not the scholar. I'm just going to tell you my reading of the various biographies and other things. Uh, but you know, Inge was a reporter 
a newspaper reporter. And um, early on in his career, he went to Chicago to cover the out-of-town opening of Glass Menagerie. Um, and it was Christmas in Chicago, downtown. Um, and there's this kind of blank spot on the map, which is this weekend that Tennessee and Inge spent together. And um, some people speculate that they had, they were lovers. They had this beautiful weekend together. Some people speculate that I just want that to be true, but it's not true. They were just in Chicago and they, maybe they had dinner one time, you know, but whatever occurred, Inge goes back to Kansas. He does this write up of Glass Menagerie, which, you know, blew his socks off. And he writes to Tennessee and says, um, I want to be a playwright. And so this, there was this pivot moment clearly for him in Chicago and he starts writing plays after that time of seeing Glass Menagerie. And, um, you know, initially Tennessee was very, um, uh, there was a reciprocal sort of, you know, like letters and phone calls and seeing and seeing each other sometimes. Um, and then, and then there was the opposite of that, the sort of like, please, you know, like get off my lawn part of that. Um, and, uh, I couldn't, I could not be speaking more, um, vaguely but but there was there was a period of their relationship where inge felt close to him and a period of relationship where inge did not and inside all of that i think that inge is in my reading he's he's chasing tennessee he's saying love me love my work like love love this art i'm making like i'm 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 moving toward you i think that inge was always trying to give William's a gift, I think. And um, I wanted to give Inge a gift uh, of a production of Picnic. And what would the gift of that production be? I thought that a gift of Picnic would be um, one in which that subtext, that... um, longing and and tragedy and passion and desire that I read right under the surface, if the um, struggle of that with this closeting language that is the text, if I could bring that to the surface, that back and forth struggle, that that would be a gift to say, um, I see you in here. Uh, and then, you know, immediately I was like, well, from what I have read and understand, Inch doesn't want this gift from me. Um, may actually be quite upset that I would dare to say that there is anything queer in his work at all. Cause, uh, you know, um, but you know, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, did, do we know how he felt about gay audiences receiving his work and gay, just like anyone taking that in, do we know that? We don't. We don't. I mean, I think yeah. that, you know. Uh, but because it's subtext, right, we can infer. Yes. And there's and there is plenty. Um, 
there's enough. In, I think what we can say is that there's enough information in um, about Inge and the, and the way he lived his life to know that he did not want to be out. Right. Or any number of reasons that make total sense, you know, like starting with personal safety and moving up to, you know, it's a crime against God or whatever it may be. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but there was, yeah, that there was a very, which is not unique, you know, uh, for the time. Um, it isn't even unique now, honestly. Very I mean, so. I know, I know we, we think we're so post, 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 but, but we're not at all. No, um, I mean, look at Hollywood, for example, there's still, yeah. I mean, we're not going to name names, but there's still plenty of actors who work in Hollywood that are, that are closeted and yeah. there's this fear and, um, it, you know, it goes on to writers and directors and all that too. So it's, it's something that hasn't left for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, <clears throat> I will say, so when I was, a, when I was approaching this work, there's, there's a. There's a direction I think we would all assume to go in, which is, well, maybe, maybe not. But there, I think there are some obvious ways to approach this, which is, okay, well, I'm going to do a picnic that is all gay men. I'm going to do a picnic that is all women. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a picnic that is blah, 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 blah. And I have come to understand that when we, for myself, when it's suggested that what we do to the work to make the comment is quote unquote, flip something, um, we're doing a disservice to the work and we're doing a disservice to the vast nuance of human identity, queer or not. (laughs) Uh, and so I'm never going to, direct a show where the whole point is um there are women playing men because i just don't subscribe to that binary that in an infinitely expanding universe there are two things to be you can be a man or you can be a woman this just doesn't make any sense truly like well how i it it blows my mind every time it blows my mind every time um I think the kindest thing I can say is uh, that's reductive. That's a reductive thought to me. But what is interesting to me is to think about how um, works like like Inge's Canon um, and many, many other works that have had this very um, kind of quietly violent effect (laughs) in their productions um, of, of reinstating uh, a sense of uh, whiteness and straightness, um, how we can use those uh, plays as platforms for um, uh, for 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 nuance and expansiveness. And uh, it's less about the sort of one trick pony of like, Oh, isn't it interesting when a woman say, says these words, a man usually says, and more, and this is just because of the amount of work I've done, I think, with new playwrights that are new plays that um, this is one of the first things I go to, which is like, okay, 
let's assume authorial intent. Let's assume this person has sat alone in their room for many years deciding if that's a comma or a period. You know, let us not be blasé about such a thing. And let's um, let's look into this character and see what the mechanics are of this character and then try and match the mechanics of that with the energy of an actor who's coming in the room so that we take out any sort of binary sense of like, well, usually, or wouldn't it be fun if, or even worse, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, and instead, in the case of Picnic, um, start asking questions about like, okay, well, what, what is in this beauty queen? You know, like, what is, what are her, um, what are her ones and zeros? You know, like, what is all the connective tissue in here? Um, and then, um, let's let's cast let's cast as expansive a net as we can um to look at actors who feel like their energies match that and let let gender sit sit aside sit sit in the back seat what i ended up wanting to do was cast this show um so that it would be an intergenerational cast so that there would be people in this play who had had experiences being gay and out that were very different depending on whether they were older or younger. Um, I think that's, you know, uh, an opportunity we miss a lot. You know, it's even, even I, I'm a fairly young person, you know, I, I, and even for me, when I'm thinking about like, Oh God, that suffering that I had you didn't have i hate you <laughs> yeah you know it's, it's interesting to see that and and we see that in in theater works as you know when when revivals of of these um historical gay pieces when they when they come back too and you see you know um like the movie that just came out, the movie version of, of the boys in the band mm-hmm. on Netflix. Right. And you get vast reactions about something like that based on, you know, people that were around when the original production came out mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a teenager probably at home watching it. who's having a very different perspective and historical right. impact of all that. So that's, that's really, that's really interesting to have that intergenerational dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that because I think there's an opportunity for us to, take advantage of what the theater is, which is live performance is, is a series of contradictions. That, that's what makes it what it is. Part of the intergenerational thing and the wanting to bring in a lot of different queer lived experiences into the show, again, the point of that being, I want to give a gift to this group of actors and I want to give a gift to the ghost of Inge and I want to give a gift to myself as a director. Um, One of the things that we did was um, the person with the right energy who came in to play Millie, the, the younger sister who going back to the dime store novel, you know, she's sort of like a course and reads books and wears glasses and keeps her hair in a ponytail. And then later she takes her glasses off and her hair cascades down her head and she mad lends her a dress and suddenly, Oh my God, who is Millie? Right. We all, we get this. We get this. It's all again, so pulpy, so delightfully pulpy. Um, 
so the the young woman we cast uh, was a trans woman, and um, there one she was perfect for the role. And one of the things that it made possible for me to do was to have this intergenerational moment in which other characters in the play um, give this young woman a dress. And there's a there's a moment um, at the top of the second or third act. No, it must be the second act, because the first act is basically just one scene, um, where the stage direction says, we see Millie, she's listening to the sound of music, and she's dancing a little bit. Um, and then we snap into something else, into this beautiful scene between Millie and Madge, where Millie says, uh, Madge, how do you talk to boys? Um, and so what, uh, you know, with the like two nonprofit nickels we had to rub together for this show that anyone has, um, I said, I really want to prioritize um, getting a dress made for this actress. I want her to have a dress made for her body to wear in this show, a thing that she's never had, the actor. And... I want to create this moment at the top of the second act where this music that we're told we're hearing in the stage direction is the sound of the rest of this intergenerational queer cast singing to Millie. And that Millie has this moment in this beautiful blue dress that is made just for her, where she just gets to, I, I told her, all I need you to do is to stand here and feel this dress on your body. That's it. That's what's happening. God, it just, it was, um, it, it was heartbreaking uh, and wonderful. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that there were these, like, there's these little gift moments. That's just one example. These little gift moments for everyone in the show um, in a play that was primarily going to be about... Um, the struggle of one's own homophobia. We're going to end the first part of my conversation with Will Davis here. You can continue on to part two of this episode, where Will and I discuss Inge's novels and why major productions of his works are all too infrequent. For more information on Classic Stage Company, visit us online at classicstage.org, where you can find more information about this podcast, as well as each episode's reading list, which features the works mentioned throughout every episode. Once again, I'm Phil Haas, and we hope you'll join us for part two of this episode of the CSC Podcast, available now. Take care.